I want you to listen to me. You will watch the horror movie. No, please, Daddy. You will be a big, strong boy. Please, Daddy. Not a little coward. No, no, please. You will watch the horror movie. No. Otherwise, you are weak. I'm not weak, Daddy. You are little. I'm not weak. We could just call you coward instead. How would you like that? Would you like to be called coward? No, I'm a real boy. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast in which myself, the coward, Derek, and my co-host, the movie monster boy, Aaron, tackle horror movies of all subgenres and eras, and we discuss the fears and phobias associated with each horror movie, the cultural relevancy, and just how scary they are for noobs like myself out there trying to get into horror, and movie monster boys like Aaron, who like to just gush about horror movies they like. So with that, Aaron... How are you, bro? Uh, as good as can be, I guess. It's been a weird last few days, but it is what it is. How are things on your end, Mr. Future Father? Yeah, so this was a hell of a movie to watch with that on the horizon, actually. <laughs> and this was your pick, too. I did not force this on you. Yes, I. we hadn't done a Cronenberg since Scanners, and we are going to do more Cronenberg in the future. That's a guarantee, but we wanted to kind of still touch the stuff that maybe isn't as well known or recognized stuff like this movie that we're doing this week but before we get at all that um since it's just you and i we are gonna do probably even more lengthy recommendations i'd guess huh maybe i've only got a few things to talk about so we're gonna do our recommendations this is something where aaron and i discuss other horror related media that we've been consuming lately and we recommend it to each other and hopefully you listeners hear something that you may want to check out be it other movies music even video games tv books etc with that aaron have you been getting into anything horror related lately yes i have i got a couple things to bring up real quick going off of the list of 100 greatest horror comics ever i picked up a one shot that was originally supposed to be from a 90s anthology series that never quite took off and the one shot is a story called Face by Christopher Golden, who I like a lot. He did some of the later Hellboy stuff. It is about a plastic surgeon who is kind of that hotshot 80s, 90s Wall Street douchebaggy celebrity plastic surgeon kind of guy who gets hired by this reclusive artist. So kind of like the 80s CEO villain douchebag, except this one's a surgeon. Yes, he gets hired by this reclusive artist who is a fine artist in the most traditional consideration. Like, he's friends with Picasso and all this other bullshit, but he's, like, old, deranged, wants to be cut up and done up like one of his paintings. Like a Picasso? Like he wants his face to be a Picasso, basically? Like his style of art. It's very cubist and surreal, yeah. yeah. So there's like all this under-the-surface uh, relationship stuff going on with this alcoholic, douchey surgeon and his fiance on this island by themselves with this crazy artist guy and the boundaries of everything being pushed a little bit. Super interesting. It was a one-shot comic but it's like a longer 60-ish page issue really really interesting if you can track that one down definitely worth reading through this would have been a really interesting first entry in that anthology series had they continued it 
And you said this is 90s, right? Yeah. And um, once again, that was called Face. I mentioned on the last episode the Cullen Bunn Empty Man comic series that got adapted into this movie from Fox. So I stepped back and I reread the Empty Man, the six issue arc. I forgot some of the details and characters of the original story, but it is very different from the movie. There's a younger female detective and an older male detective. The movie only follows this one ex-cop. There's a charismatic kind of evangelical mega church preacher guy who is helping to spread this weird psychic disease. There are definitely like creature monsters. There's no like specific connection to like the prologue of this movie that they set up. It's very different. Some young children get kidnapped by this evil force in the comics and you know instead teenagers who commit suicide in the movie. Like it's very very different. The comic's great. Definitely worth checking out. I'm curious to kind of get into that second arc, but that's just quick update on that. And then as far as movies and TV stuff goes, I don't believe I have mentioned this here, so stop me if I have, but I know you and I have talked about it. There is a new show. It's on HBO Max that you can watch right now. It is technically airing on like HBO Europe. It is a show from Alex de la Iglesia, the director who did Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango. This show is 30 Coins. So this is a show set in Spain. The concept of the show is Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus and led to Jesus being crucified and all that. He was paid 30 silver coins by the Romans for his betrayal. And then of course guilt and everything else kind of gets to him and he commit suicide. So the concept of the show is that these 30 silver coins are like cursed as fuck. And so they're these ancient symbols of power. Such a like simple good idea that yeah. I'm kind of surprised it was never done previously. The 30 coins each being these cursed things. Yeah. And so there's this kind of Illuminati sub Catholic church group secret society that is trying to collect all the coins again and gather them up from all the different areas around the world and you know to what end dot 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 we don't know but they're trying to get all 30 of these like cursed ass coins back together one of the main characters is this disgraced priest who did a bad exorcism years earlier that failed and got him in a lot of trouble. And so he is now kind of booted to this middle of nowhere town. But this is the badass priest who like, you know, you walk in at night and he's fucking shirtless and boxing and old man muscly and he's got a giant Punisher wall full of guns that are all like filled with silver bullets and shit. He didn't do anything inappropriate with children. Yeah, no, he did not do anything inappropriate with children. But yeah, there's like a moment in one of the early episodes where he kind of explains like, yeah, the Catholic Church has all of these relics of power in every church. You know, there's like bones of the saints or artifacts or whatever. So the 30 coins are essentially that, but for like the anti-church, evil church, right? It's kind of monster of the week a little bit. There is definitely like a giant creepy baby monster in the first episode. There is a cursed mirror in one of the episodes. Like there's some pretty wild shit in it. Just stuff like, oh yeah, this farm where they raise all this cattle and then just suddenly one of the cows gives birth to 
to like a human child that kind of stuff <laughs> and you're just like wait what the fuck just happened that's wild yeah so it's been pretty fucking cool so far so i would definitely recommend check that out two movies i mentioned on the last episode as well queen of black magic written by joko anwar and directed by kimo samuel that is on shutter i didn't realize that it was a remake over the credits of the movie you see these stills from some older movie there is an original the queen of black magic from like 1980 81 yeah i remember you texting me about this yeah and shutter threw it up on there too so i watched it and checked it out and i bring it up because it's the same concept but it is a completely different story from this new one so you could watch them as a good double feature and get two completely different stories with the same general theme this one is about a woman who was kind of lined up to marry this guy that she had fallen for in her village and then he basically just says hut nope sorry i'm getting married to like the daughter of the rich guy in the village cool bye and so she's tore up about that well during the wedding bad shit happens and they blame it on her they instantly just turn to her and say it's her she's doing this it's black magic she's trying to curse us it's gotta be her so the villagers immediately like round her up burn her house down with her mother in it and like throw her off a cliff she survives and this shaman at the bottom of the cliff finds her and kind of nurses her back to health and he's like yo you got to get revenge on all these motherfuckers so why not let me just actually teach you black magic and so you can just exact your revenge on them and just be exactly the thing that they're accusing you of doing anyway. Fuck it. <laughs> and that's the first 10 minutes of this movie. So yeah. I'm not like spoiling the entire thing for you. That's pretty packed 10 minutes. It's the same general idea of somebody is committing black magic to get revenge on somebody in a village for past transgressions. So it's the same general idea but a very different story and it's kind of fun and charming in its own way like there's some wild special effects and it's this woman going around and just murdering all the people who like you know were part of the mob that threw her off a cliff and burned her house down and killed her mother and all this other stuff so it's just fun to like watch her wave her hands around and like literally corkscrew into the ground and then one of the guys in a rice field gets sucked under the ground and gets eaten by worms and shit so yeah that was definitely a lot of fun that's on shutter as well and again good double feature to like watch both back to back last thing i'll mention is a newer movie from brian bertino who directed the strangers this movie is called the dark and the wicked and i'm just gonna go ahead and say i was not a huge fan of it Hmm. conceptually it looked interesting but it just was very basic I have heard lots of people, you know, say that they like it. I will be kind of maybe a counterbalance to that a little bit. Check it out. You know, there's no risk in watching it, not watching it, whatever. It just didn't quite work for me. It doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't really explain. Well, I I won't say it doesn't go anywhere. That's kind of a weird, shitty cop answer. But the resolution is not satisfying, in my opinion. Because you don't really learn what is happening, why it is happening, how it started, who is 
is doing what there's just no explanation whatsoever yeah and, and it doesn't really like end with an ending it just kind of stops it's just one of those movies <laughs> that suddenly it's just over yeah there's like a jump scare and then the credits and you're like wait that's it really oh wait it ends on a jump scare yeah i hate like that's so stupid yeah whatever that's I, a bad trope tonally it's interesting like it's a good looking movie it definitely has some dread and creep to it it will certainly unsettle you throughout the entire movie but to what end is my complaint heather was in the room for the last maybe 20 minutes of it while i was watching it and as soon as that last jump scare happened and the credits hit i like threw up my fucking hands and i was just like wait what that's it and she was just like what were you even watching (laughs) it was just entirely too bleak at the end and like from what i could tell nothing got resolved so like what what is this movie i don't know i was not a huge fan of it has it received accommodations from the horror crowd or critics i mean it's been generally well accepted a lot of people whose opinion i respect have enjoyed it and thought it was very good i mean i will say that it is a technically competent movie and there is definitely some creepy stuff in it the performances are all solid it just does nothing for me from a story standpoint at all it's about a woman who goes back to her parents farm after her father has had an accident she's kind of there to help her mother out a little bit and things just kind of go downhill from there and you know there's some evil force stalking this family but there's just never any kind of explanation about anything so yeah if movies where the characters are isolated in the middle of nowhere creepy vibes and voices and oh there shouldn't be anybody here but somebody else is here oh yeah there's like somebody in the next room like that kind of creepy dread you'll probably dig it it just didn't work for me from a story standpoint so well that's disappointing because horror needs to work from a plot standpoint as well as a scare standpoint you could make the argument that maybe that's hypocritical of me to say being that i love so much david lynch but like david lynch has a purpose even when he's being like well there's a difference between like surrealism and impressionism in the plot versus a story that is supposed to be telling you a story like the movie doesn't couch anything in surrealism or yeah it's supposed that, to be like impressionistic kind of thing like it's supposed to be a straightforward story that's what it's aiming to do but like i said the movie does just cut to credits suddenly and you're like wait that's where's the other 15 minutes of this movie that gives me a resolution so i was kind of disappointed with it so either way that's all i've really got to talk about so on to you sir So uh, I'll start off my recommendations kind of going back to something I had brought up a chunk of episodes ago. I think I brought it up on maybe one of our holiday themed episodes, but I finally went back and finished up Remothered Tormented Fathers. If you didn't listen to the episode, I had that on as a recommendation. It is a 2018 Italian survival horror video game, a spiritual successor to the Clock Tower series in which you're playing as someone who is trying to run away like picture any of the scenes in a slasher movie like where people are running and hiding in a house trying to escape said slasher who can't be stopped and that's the kind of genre that the clock tower series and remothered are a part of so in the game like you're being chased by various stalkers is what they call them in this game and while you can't kill them you can like stun them and distract them with items and stuff so you're not completely defenseless so that's kind of the basis gameplay for 
sport. I played a couple hours of it, praised it as kind of this dangerous game that isn't necessarily a low budget game, but it's definitely wasn't triple A quality. It was kind of came out of nowhere and a lot of people dug. It almost feels like it, it developed a cult following overnight when it came out. You can definitely see the seams with some of the voice acting not matching the characters' mouths and stuff like that. But again, like we've described other movies, there's a dangerous nature to that because it's just like we're pouring all of our creative energy into this game. Yeah, and you're kind of getting a raw, unfiltered vision instead of something that has been like really finely honed by a large committee. Yeah, it's like it's not quite Resident Evil. It's not quite like Capcom level of survival horror prettiness and polish to it. I gave it high marks when I recommended it the first time. So I went back and I took a break from it. Um, I got distracted playing other stuff. Just the other night, actually, earlier this week, I went back and finished it. And it's a lot shorter of a game than I thought it was. It only took me about like seven or eight hours to beat. So it's not long at all. And I probably spent more than 20 bucks on this game. I probably spent 30 to 40 bucks and I still think it was worth it just because I really enjoy it. That being said, I'm not going to outright spoil any story points, but I'm going to talk about some themes that may spoil some stuff about the game so if this is a game you want to check out i do still recommend it trigger warning there is some problematic stuff involved with this game that i really can't bring up unless you're cool with being kind of spoiled so if you are cool with that great if you're not you may want to skip ahead like five ten minutes to my next recommendation so kind of almost like sleepaway camp where it's that kind of dangerous nature this game deals with a lot of disturbing themes and among those themes is a trope that you and i have criticized on past episodes even as recently as silence of the lambs of trans or cross-dressing equaling evil because one of the stalkers in this game is a cross-dresser and was manipulated into being a cross-dresser because their father wanted a specific gender for their child and the child was born the gender they didn't want so they manipulated them through raising them and trying to convince them into being a gender they weren't born as or they weren't assigned at birth with Uh, i hope i'm not fucking up these terms uh forgive me if i am and please correct me if i am but um so there is that problematic nature to it even kind of along the lines with the brood and we'll bring this up again when we discuss the brood exploring the idea of like women being the monster but kind of like with the brood it's a bunch of men experimenting on women and then being surprised when like the experiment goes wrong and they become the monster there is a little bit of that in this game as well it really does feel like a dangerous game like it's just something that's kind of right on the cusp of being exploitative or or whatever but again i i enjoyed it i am gonna play the sequel broken porcelain um they seem to have patched a lot of the problems that were at the dropping of said sequel so i will hopefully report back when i do get around to playing broken porcelain and have that as another recommendation i do dig this series i think they're going to try and make it into a trilogy so we have one more game left that is all i got about that I finished up separating the comics I was going to keep um, with the comics I was going to sell. I talked about that on and off through the last couple episodes, actually, with you, Aaron. I've talked to you a lot about it off recording, but now I'm in the process of finalizing the organization of like how I actually want to store these comics that I'm keeping. One of the series kind of rediscovered and re-fell in love with that I decided to keep is a comic called Coffin Hill. Coffin Hill ran for 20 issues. It was written by an author named Caitlin 
Kittredge. She writes a lot of urban fantasy, dark fantasy, more like young adult kind of stuff, but this was a horror comic that she wrote. I think it originally came out for DC Comics. It might have been one of the last titles that was on their Vertigo print when Vertigo was still around. It is a supernatural horror book that deals a lot with like witchcraft. There's a bit of true crime in it with serial killers. There is a lot of like haunting kind of stuff going on. Just the basic premise. I don't want to go too deep into the premise because I don't want to give away anything in case you want to check it out. Following this wild night in her teenage years, this woman named Eve Coffin just wakes up in the middle of the forest naked and covered in blood doesn't remember how she got there. Her friends are kind of all fucked up. Like one friend is missing straight up. The other friend gets sent to a mental institution and that's the way the comic starts. And then years later, Eve is returning to Coffin Hill, the town she's from. And the name of the town and her family's namesake are all tied together with them being the coffins that they had this weird past that's always been like followed by death and like supernatural bullshit going on. The artwork is fantastic. This is a comic that I remember as I was reading it, it actually had jump scares in it or the comics equivalent of that of like you turning a page and all of a sudden there's a really scary like someone's possessed. You're not ready for it when you see it. And it goes in a lot of different directions. It does maybe get a little saturated and kind of repeat the same beats. It maybe doesn't handle the idea of like the spirit of a witch or something haunting a family in quite in the same successful way as Harrow County does. But it does handle a lot of modern horror tropes really well i would recommend it again like just like harrow county i'm holding on to this comic uh i do want to reread it one day um i thought it was a solid horror series i'm kind of bummed that vertigo is no longer a print under dc yeah i hope that dc does other like non-superhero adult themed related comics like this down the line especially in the horror genre because i mean even sandman had a bit of horror when that was coming out under vertigo in the 90s i think preacher came out under vertigo i believe that's correct yeah yeah so it would be nice for dc to kind of like resurrect some more adult horror non-superhero related stuff moving on so while i was organizing today i did a lot of it actually um i spent a few hours and with that i was listening to a lot of music and for some reason i was in a spooky mood with music today I have brought them up multiple times on this show. They are on our Spotify playlist. I even suggest that like you play some of their tracks in a certain way on our Spotify playlist. I decided to check out some of the other albums from the Butthole Surfers that I hadn't listened to yet. Okay. And the one I chose today is I never listened to Rembrandt Pussy Horse. Yeah, there's good shit on there. Yeah, Rembrandt Pussy Horse is mid-80s Butthole Surfers before they really kind of became semi-radio like friendly. So, like, this was still mid-80s, but Whole Surfers, like, when they were super experimental and dark and even kind of acted a little bit like dickheads, which they always had that kind of energy. I, I laugh because, like, the fucking Butthole Surfers, it, it really is a cliche at this point to say they are, like, a bad acid trip distilled into audio format, but there's really no other way to describe them. Yeah. Um, they're, they are a nightmare when you listen to them. They are, like, you're on acid and you are seeing the devil. It is experimental, psychedelic, noise rock, even a bit of like industrial rock, kind of all mashed into this like tumor (laughs) of like noise. And I mean this all endearingly, like this is exactly what I want. I wanted something really dark and avant-garde and surreal and like just manic. And that's kind of what you get with the butthole surfers. 
specifically this album. It's funny because like the first half of the album is the most accessible and I say with heavy quotations because there's actually at least semblance of actual song structure and then once you get to the second half of the album it is some experimental noise rock bullshit. Again I mean I'm saying all of this in the most endearing manner. I dig the butthole surfers. I dug this album a lot. Um, One of my favorite tracks is their cover of American Woman because it it is (laughs) like industrial as fuck and like super dark and creepy. I winded up adding a couple tracks from this album to our Spotify playlist. I definitely added the first track, Creep in the Cellar, that's now on our Spotify playlist, just because it literally is all about a creep in the cellar who is peeling off his skin and shit. Like, it's horror. (laughs) Do you have anything else to add about this album? Like, I don't know what else to say. Like, it's just, Gibby Haynes is, like, distorting his voice the whole time. They're playing, like, clips of newscasts and random shit that's super creepy. Like, what what am I missing? I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You're definitely, like, hyping it up in my head again that, oh, yeah, man, I need to like put some on tomorrow while I'm working or something and see if I can like focus with that still going on in the background. Yeah, like I'll admit because I was planning on like listening to two Butthole Surfers albums back to back and I'll admit I, after like going through this, I was like, one is enough for today. <laughs> I liked it. I really liked it. But man, does it take something out of you when you listen to it. I do recommend this album. I do think it's a great album. However, anything from the Butthole Surfers, I a thousand percent understand if you don't think it's good music and you're not into it. It's tough to listen to sometimes. <laughs> I get it. But I love it. Uh, again, the name, of the, the name of the album is cleverly called Rembrandt Pussy Horse. So check that out. And then my last recommendation, and I may have brought up a long time ago like a year ago but they popped up on my shuffle as well and then i winded up like kind of listening more to the album is a uh, red fangs prehistoric dog the reason why i'm bringing them up again as like a horror recommendation is i would love to hear prehistoric dog being played during the action of a zombie movie or something <laughs> yeah i think it would be a perfect track for like an action horror scene
And it's funny because like at least one of their music videos actually deals with zombies. Like it's a zombie outbreak. Blood Like Cream, I think, is the track that has that. So check out their music videos as well. But Prehistoric Dog is a great track. If you don't know Red Fang, they are a stoner rock, stoner metal band. They put out their self-titled album, which I think is their first album back in 2009. The first track on this is Prehistoric Dog, and it's arguably the best track that like the band has ever had. Um, not that they're a bad band. It's just that this track kicks so much ass that like I don't think they've ever really topped themselves on that. And that's really all I got to say about that. I do remember one of our like weirder concert going experiences, me and you, Aaron, was when we saw Red Fang at like that dive bar in New Orleans. And like the crowd was kind of shitty. Things got a little awkward and dangerous when someone rushed the stage twice and like grabbed the mic out of the singer's hand. <laughs> I don't know if you remember any of that. Was that at Siberia? Yeah. When Siberia was still around? It was okay. Siberia. Yep. Gotcha. I say still around. I, don't, I think they're closed down now. I can't remember. I don't know. We've seen them a couple of times, but I was trying to remember what exact instance you were talking about. But yeah, yeah, it was at Siberia. That place was definitely a, uh, the talent gets very close to the fans. So wild shit can tend to happen there. But yeah, that's definitely a band worth checking out for sure. Yeah. And I, I think they winded up like anytime I ever saw them playing in New Orleans ever again. I think it was always either at One Eye Jacks or House of Blues. Like I think they were one and done on Siberia after that <laughs> yeah. experience. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, that is going to be it, and uh, let's go ahead and get into the movie that we are covering this week, which is David Cronenberg's musings on family breakup and divorce and custody battles. You could say it's his Kramer versus Kramer. That's what he says it is. We are talking about <laughs> the 1979 insano body horror family drama horror movie, The Brood. To take Candace away from her at this stage could send Nello over into the deep end. Well, my daughter's been beaten. Severely. And scratched. And bitten. And her mother did it. Show me your anger, Nello. Show it to me. Go all the way through it to the end. You better hit me! this look impressive in court? Ignorant son of a bitch, Dr. Reitman. If I don't hear from my daughter by tomorrow afternoon, I'm coming back up here to get her. He wants to be alone with her. Dr. Reitman wants to be alone with your wife. Candy! I just don't feel threatened by her anymore. Man, does anyone do body horror quite like Cronenberg? Uh, very few. Lots of people have tried. That will be his legacy. I'm sure he probably doesn't want to be known for just that one thing, but bro, you got that one thing and you've done it better than anybody else. Like, by a long shot. Yeah. Even this movie still looks better than majority of body horror stuff I've seen, like, nowadays. There's just such a psychoanalytic back end to it. You know, we can maybe dig into this a little bit deeper later, but the one thing I will say about Cronenberg is he is not afraid 
to like open up his fucking head and dig into like the deepest darkest fucking corners of his own psyche and then just smear that shit all over the paper he definitely reveals a lot about himself in his movies yeah and it's not always good looks either pretty you know, like, yeah <laughs> this movie certainly shows what he was dealing with at the time and how he was handling it there's a lot of dark shit in this movie that comes out and a lot of his attitudes toward marriage marriage and his ex-wife specifically and his views about women which you know that stuff kind of all shifts over time but at least with his movies you know you're always getting him in the movie in a very uncut and unfiltered way that you rarely do with a lot of other directors you know a lot of people will say well a director's job is to execute on the movie so that you never know that they were there you know okay sure that's fine in a lot of instances but then you've got a lot of people like spike lee and scorsese tarantino and cronenberg were like so much of what makes their movies is they are pulling from their own psyches and like their own personality and putting that onto the screen and without that their movies wouldn't be what they are he takes that like unspoken rule about directing and throws it out the fucking window so we aren't going to necessarily talk too much about cronenberg's past because we did that on our scanners episode so you know, if you want to know about that, you know, go back and listen to our Scanners episode. But we've only done Scanners and now The Brood from him. And it's only going to get more... It's only going to get better, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, well, better, but also crazy and more, like, in-depth from here the more we do him. And even in Scanners, I would say, like, he maybe revealed the least amount about himself personally in Scanners, at least out of the Cronenberg movies I've watched. But he definitely, like, this movie is all about, like, what he's going through at the time of him making it so do yourself a favor like if this is a movie you're going to planning on watch go in completely cold turkey i made the mistake of looking up a couple images about it like when aaron and i were trying to figure out like what episodes we want to do when and like during that planning process i just was kind of looking up stuff about certain movies i looked up the brood and i saw like just a couple images completely out of context i had no idea like what the context of the images were so it didn't like ruin the movie for me necessarily but i actually went into the movie with an attitude i always do this i always make this mistake with Cronenberg thinking it's going to be kind of a trash horror movie or like a goofy horror movie from like the 70s or 80s that does like a lot of gory effects but like is just otherwise like kind of batshit and then I actually watched the Cronenberg movie and like there is still like that really dark practical effects craziness to the body horror there's also a lot of cold intellectualism and really exactly naked emotional stuff in his movies too yeah and that's what floors me every time just how brutally honest and dark these movies are despite what the image looks like when you just take it out of the context of the rest of the film and put it on like a google image search because if you do that then you're going to look at it and be like what the fuck is this but then if you actually sit down and watch the movie oh shit i see what he's doing i see the places his brain are going and like it's crazy so i will do my spiel here right up top This isn't a particularly, at least in terms of jump scares or anything like that, this isn't a particularly scary movie in that regard. And it's not even necessarily like a super scary 
horror movie, unless you don't like body horror. If you don't like body horror, Cronenberg is going to scare the shit out of you every time. But it is more like, I I don't know, like it's hard to describe it. It sat with me. This movie is one of those sit with you movies that made me think about it a lot. If we're kind of giving everybody that heads up now, I would say that a major theme of this movie is domestic abuse and child abuse specifically. So if that's something that you're super sensitive to, know that going into this movie. It is the ultimate failed marriage like horror movie I think I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) We we haven't gotten to possession yet, but this is certainly up there for sure. Yeah, like if you want the idea of your hatred and insecurities that you share with your ex literally coming to life and like terrorizing people and terrorizing you in like grotesque ways, then like that's the kind of horror you're looking at with the brood. As far as like newbies go, like I don't know if I'd recommend it to newbies, not because of the actual horror, but more of just this is a movie you are not expecting. Like I loved it. I think that this is one of Cronenberg's now like underrated movies. I hate to say that, but like you have movies like The Fly that are just amazing and just kind of standing up to the rest of his filmography. Like I think this is one that this was important in the development of where he went as a filmmaker, I feel like. And it was one of the more experimental quote unquote ones, as well as one of the ones that might even be slightly problematic. And this is something I wanted to bring up with you like here before we would even do like spoilers. And you kind of touched on already the idea of misogyny. I brought it up earlier during the recommendations, but this movie kind of deals with the theme of experimentation on women, women being monsters, but like the experimentation on the women is done by mostly men. And then the men act surprised when like the experiment goes wrong and the women become the monster. Sure. I did read a little bit. There's a whole analysis section on like the Wikipedia and I, I hate to like use Wikipedia and just like quote Wikipedia articles on our podcast, but like there was a feminist critic who brought that up. I just want to read her like quote. It's from feminist critic Carrie Rickey in response to like the criticism of a lot of his movies being misogynistic representation of women. For me, Cronenberg's gynophobia is a non-issue. It's blaming the victim. After all, aren't we talking about movies where male scientists use women as guinea pigs and then are shocked, shocked when the test subject become monstrous, voracious, etc.? Let me invoke the Jessica Rabbit defense. The women are not bad. They're just drawn that way. It's the male scientists who have inadvertently transformed into men's worst nightmares. And I think that's kind of like a good summation of of kind of that idea against this movie. What do you think? I mean, I think I agree with that. This movie walks right on the razor's edge of misogyny. Yeah. It, it is very much about women as a destructive, all-consuming force of nature and how that can be dangerous and that has to be controlled. But on the other hand, it is also about how men fear that and instead of learning to like accept that and not see that in a negative light you know and embrace women for who they are it's very much about how men can be controlling and want to repress that and how they demonize that behavior as bad as other as out of control as hysterical like whatever you want to put on that and how again you know then they're always shocked when things like go bad right or it bites them in the ass it's kind of like the flip of the quote men are afraid women will shame them women are afraid men will kill them and it kind of flips that on its head to like in in this case the women are killing them and knowing that at this time 
you know, and lots of directors, lots of writers have made movies about their own personal relationship issues or the death of a spouse or divorce or whatever. This movie for Cronenberg specifically was kind of his reaction to the really messy divorce from his first wife and custody battle over their child. There is certainly the like mom is the bad one in the situation angle because his wife ran off, left him and his daughter, went to a crazy commune cult in California, and then wanted to take their daughter with them. And he saw that as a like, uh, the fuck? No, you're not taking our daughter to this crazy hippie commune. She doesn't need to be in that environment around those kind of people like the fuck. And they had a very contentious divorce and custody battle. The mother is definitely kind of pegged in this story as being the monster, the one who's out of control. She is the bad guy. But on the other hand, the dad in this is also incredibly ineffectual and passive, can't make decisions and can't really act in the moment and handle things. So he's just as complicit in like what's going on because he's not active. He was the one that left her in the care of this super experimental like treatment with this weird doctor. And of course the doctor, like, I mean, you could make the argument he did absolutely nothing but make things worse in terms of her becoming said monster. Again, that goes back to that theme of the scientist turning the subject into the monster. You'd mentioned like how Cronenberg walks the razor's edge. And I think a lot of it is purposeful because I think even like maybe at the time of just the way that this movie is and like me watching it, it felt like he was completely self-aware of exactly what he was doing. Like it felt like he knew he was coming from a place of anger and maybe some of the things he was saying aren't necessarily true about women. But that's how he was feeling. That's how he was feeling. Exactly. And And that's how he's trying to process it. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of and you know you're not wrong or right if you feel one way or the other about Cronenberg when it comes to misogyny just in my opinion throughout all of his movies but especially this one that I've seen it really does feel like it's a huge self-awareness on his end like he it's like a critique of it almost a parody of it the idea of this misogyny um it's not necessarily like him being an incel being like take this woman here's my horror movie like harpooning you well you know we talked a second ago about Kramer versus Kramer and I was talking to Heather about that I've read in like three different places in the last couple days referencing like this is his reaction to Kramer versus Kramer that came out the same year which makes no sense to me because this movie started production a calendar year before Kramer versus Kramer even came out either he read the book Kramer versus Kramer when it was kind of a popular hit or he maybe read the screenplay early when it was getting passed around but he would not have seen this movie before the brood came out because the brood came out in the summer of that year yes but he was quoted as saying that this is kind of his version of kramer versus that's what i'm saying yeah Yeah, like he apparently at some point in time said yeah i was very dissatisfied with the optimistic ending of that story and like how the whole thing played out because that was just so absolutely completely the opposite of my personal experience with the same situation well and when i was reading about it too something that i thought was interesting and i believe it's on a essay or analysis of this movie on rogerebert.com i apologize i don't have that article pulled, <laughs> pulled up hated this movie. oh ebert yeah ebert hated this movie but this analysis was like a more modern like within the last couple of years and the take on it that i thought was really fascinating was how he started off the first part of this essay kind of saying 
seeing how, because it is compared a lot to Kramer versus Kramer, especially like from Cronenberg himself, the author was saying the difference is that Kramer versus Kramer, right when you see it, almost feels like it's a product of the time. It's already almost even outdated when it comes out. But when you see the brood, the brood stands as this thing that not necessarily is timeless, but it's something that is effective even today. Whereas Kramer versus Kramer probably isn't nearly as, as effective as it was when it first came out. And he was also saying that even like filmmakers like Scorsese, Doug Cronenberg, and maybe even this movie, like Cronenberg was well respected amongst his peers, even when this film was coming out. I think the other thing too, the general idea about Kramer versus Kramer, it's also very much from a male perspective where the husband, the father is the one who's doing all the right things and the mom is the one who ran out on them and disappeared and now she's wanting her child back and oh, the audacity, right? Mom is kind of made into the villain in Kramer versus Kramer to a degree as well, you know, but it's very much a male point of view and that experience is kind of one-sided. You're only really getting kind of the one end of it. Even Marriage Story recently, like that's kind of something that people discuss with it is that the movie's more favorable to the Adam Driver character than to the Scarlett Johansson character. But overall, yeah, like this movie walks that edge really tightly. But I think instead of focusing on the misogyny, is it, is it not angle, I think the main thing to really consider is the movie is about generational abuse and trauma and how those cycles continue down the line because that behavior is perpetuated and that trauma is perpetuated. Both mother and father are complicit in that to varying degrees and not by the same cause or behavior but there is definitely shared guilt there with both you know so i don't i don't think it necessarily has to be a mom or dad is the bad one as much as just both played their part in the situation and in this case both nola and frank played their parts who you feel the most for in this movie is not only just their daughter but like anyone who comes close in their situation basically yeah everyone who gets involved in any way gets punished and the only two people not being punished for most of the movie are the father and the wife literally being punished like physically <laughs> but yeah like it, it really is like anyone who gets caught up in, in their bullshit basically dies between a uh, mild spoiler Spoilers starting here for The Brood. Both her grandparents get killed because they get involved. And the teacher who had an interest in him. Yeah, and the grandparents definitely seem to be kind of wrapped up into this because again they are kind of that originator of the trauma yeah and so they're kind of that stage one nola is that stage two and then now candace is that stage three and we're seeing the same behaviors perpetuated throughout all of these characters the children suffer the sins of the parents basically yeah and in some ways it definitely feels like the grandparents biting it is just revenge for the things that happened may not have happened I choose to think that they happened to Noah. I think they did happen too, which which made the like especially the grandmother, her mom's death. Eh, I didn't mourn her. <laughs> yeah. With, like if if like the things that happened were actually true. That's certainly something that is complicated in this movie as well. That has been a point of controversy with a lot of psychotherapy and stuff like this is how much of what we are being told actually happened. Yeah. And 
I always want to err on the side of believing the people who are the victims. Yeah. Right? Like, Same. just, I would rather make the mistake there than the other way around. Yeah, than victim blame or just not even believe the victim. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like, there, there is way more of an institutional complex built up around defending one side of that argument than the other. But on the other hand, we know that quite often there were a lot of famous cases of psychotherapists and all these people who, many of whom were unqualified. They were maybe doctors in like other arenas who then called themselves psychiatric doctors and were kind of doing all this hooky-dooky bullshit in the 70s and 80s that got popular. But how so many of those cases and those instances caused a ton of harm, a ton of people were accused of things. And then turns out, no, it was a bunch of horseshit. Like all the past life regression stuff that led to the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s so much of that was just people forcing shit into kids heads and creating these traumas and creating these histories and these series of events that never happened right and so the movie definitely leaves you with that ambiguity you know because nola says you know my mother used to hit me and beat me and abuse me and then you know you hear from the mother and she's like no i didn't i never did that yeah she is making that shit up she has twisted something i was certainly like harsh on her but like i never did that you know so on the other hand okay sure let's consider both sides of that but then like grandma's fucking drinking all day exactly so there's right there's enough stuff there because like there's a weird relationship between her grandfather and her grandmother like them being separated something happened there between them and like yeah she's drinking so there's enough ambiguity there to really make you think why would she lie about this and then on the other hand too the sad part is maybe it even is just part of her trauma or mental illness is just believing that this was the case yeah which would make this all the more tragic and that's the other side of this movie we haven't even touched on yet in terms of the horror and the themes is the idea of psychotherapy because kind of like where Cronenberg invented the idea of scanners kind of almost being like the x-men or mutants if all of them were telepaths he basically makes up his own own field of psychotherapy just for this movie's plot which is great I love that he did that. So yeah, I think this movie is certainly going to be a little bit problematic. You know, I think a lot of Cronenberg's work is complicated and problematic. He is certainly a complicated person himself. Again, it's totally fine if you think he's just a misogynistic douchebag. Like, that's the thing with him is it's multi-layered. It's very interesting, though, hearing both sides of it because you'll have some people who totally read his movie one way hardcore and that's it period but then you'll have people literally like saying the complete opposite yeah and some people would also argue that maybe that's a failing like on him as a director as a writer that there's no line drawn there and like it's his irresponsibility for taking like a definite stand on one thing or the other i think it's more just a revelation of his brain and like that shows that like people are complicated kind of like how we talked about earlier i think it's him being very honest about yeah like during this point in my life considering the situation i was going through i was very 
very resentful toward my wife. And I felt like she was, you know, on the wrong side of this conflict. And that's how this story kind of plays out in this movie. And I know I'm repeating myself, but again, I think the difference between him and like a director who would be just outright misogynistic is he is totally aware that he is acting like a resentful asshole, in my opinion. This movie feels like it comes from a place of like someone who knows that they probably didn't handle things the best way either. Yeah, and and I think that comes through again with the, I wouldn't say protagonist, but I guess the lead. Let's just, let's call him the lead character who you are following. You're learning just as much about him and how he handled this relationship and how he has been handling things. How he fucking handles this entire movie of just, hey, I'm going to go on this revenge trip to like get this doctor and I'm going to take down this institution and I'm going to get revenge on my wife for like doing all this shitty stuff. Oh, let me just pawn my child off on grandmother. Oh, grandmother gets killed. Oops, shit. Let me call grandfather to like fly to the other end of the country and dump the kid off on him real quick oops let me call up the kids like fucking teacher and have her come over and like watch this kid for the entire evening while i run around you know just all of that like he shows just as much terrible behavior and decision making and again like ineffectualness he is constantly just walking in on things and they happen around him and then he's just kind of there while other people clean up and make the decision so i think it would be different if he was a thousand percent written as always correct and always in the right and always the one leading the action but he's not so the whole idea of it just being nola's fault you know i don't think you can completely lay that at the movie's feet or cronenberg's feet because he is shown to be just as shitty dude there's one scene and i'll bring it up if and when we talk about it later but there's one scene where he just makes the situation 10 times more worse than it needs to be that's kind of his character in a nutshell yeah and uh yeah i i think Cronenberg knew exactly what he was doing by characterizing him in that, in that fashion, which is why, again, I think he has the self-realization that he's not as right as he thinks he might be. Yeah, totally. There's not a whole lot of background production stuff to go into for this movie. I mean, it was pretty straightforward. You know, he came off of Rabid and then Shivers, both of which were like very B-grade grindhouse exploitation movies. This is definitely the first kind of step in into that more serious realm. Again, yeah, it feels like that very transitional piece of art for an artist. Going back to what I said at the beginning of if you look up images of this movie, stills of this movie, it just might look kind of like that B-grade trash, but then when you watch it, it's something completely different. I think the stylistic changes that this movie goes into, the very specific attention to detail when it comes to the costuming and the sets and the camera work this is howard shore's debut as a composer oh man and he puts his soul into the score (laughs) yeah the score is definitely kind of big and it's over the top and it's just screaming and traumatic but that's kind of the movie that this is 
it's a very showy score, but it is definitely not the like low grade caliber that he had in those first few movies. You know, so this is definitely kind of a step into that next realm. This was not a huge hit when it came out. $1.5 million budget. It made about $5 million. So, I mean, it made money, but it was not like a mega hit. It did not stay in theaters very long. It was also kind of mixed. I mean, Roger Ebert, like you had mentioned earlier, like fucking hated this movie. Yeah, I mean, it was mostly negative reviews because people just didn't know what the fuck to make of this. You know, it wasn't as exploitation grindhousey as his first couple of movies, but it wasn't completely highbrow either. I mean, at the end of the day, this is about little mutant monster children like murdering people. So, you know, it's it's not entirely the highbrow kind of bullshit that people, you know, were wanting. So it wasn't necessarily maybe ahead of its time for 1978 but it felt ahead of its time for his own filmography, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of where it was. This was also the first movie where he had known legit actors in it. He caught a lot of flack early for Rabid in casting Marilyn Chambers, who was an adult film actress for that movie. This movie specifically, you've got mainly Oliver Reed and Samantha Egger, who were like kind of the two most well-known at the time. And do they put in some performance? performances in this movie by the way totally yeah i oliver reed like i fucking love in anything he is just always fucking sweaty and intense and you can just like smell the fucking scotch on his breath did he ever play a priest that was a washed up exorcist because like that seems like the perfect role for him so one of his most well-known roles is in fucking ken russell's the devils where he is the like priest leading this fucking crazy revolution and then like all the nuns of ludon or wherever like accused him of bewitching all of them and driving them all crazy and horny oh he plays that guy um i think last last podcast literally just covered that yeah i think they covered like the the real life story of all of that but yeah Yeah. king russell's the devils is great that is one that warner brothers fucking needs to put out on blu-ray and do like an uncut version of it i want that so hard i feel like if you would replace the priest and the exorcist with oliver reed being the one it would have fit perfectly (laughs) 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 bruh wait till we 900 episodes from now get to burnt offerings and it's just him fucking sweaty and trying to like drown his child in a pool (laughs) yeah so i mean he's he's fucking wild in this movie samantha egger is like on another fucking planet in a good Uh, way even art hindle that plays frank you know prior to this movie he was in black christmas which we've covered on the show yes and invasion of the body snatchers so like there were more well-known people in this movie for the first time for Cronenberg. I knew I recognized him from somewhere because I was just like, what else have I seen him in that we've done? It's Black Christmas, yes. And it's funny because my reaction to The Brood is kind of this similar to Black Christmas because kind of peeked behind the curtain, and I've told this to Aaron a couple times, since we've done Black Christmas on this podcast, that is now like one of my favorite movies, period, the original Black Christmas. It is up there with like The Shining and Alien as like one of my favorite horror movies of all time now. And I had a similar reaction to The Brood 
The Brood is honestly like this has been one of my favorite movies we've covered so far on this show. I did not know what I was getting into when I started watching this and what I got. I wasn't ready for it, but in a very good way. Yeah. So yeah, like this movie was definitely a transitional step for Cronenberg. I dug out my college papers. It was kind of fun going back through those because it was definitely like a peek into like my college brain. It was interesting looking at my film papers specifically because it was kind of a glimpse into the people I was interested in at the time and who I was watching a lot of at the time. I looked back and I had papers on like Pedro Almodovar and Claire Denis and Charles Burnett and Lars von Trier. Speaking of Oof. controversial yeah. people, but I definitely had three papers on Cronenberg more than anybody else. Hell yeah. I had a paper on this Videodrome and The Fly. And I remember one of like one of the conversations that made you and I become friends in college was I had just read stuff about Videodrome and saw some imagery from it and was like, I really want to watch this movie. Have you ever seen it? And you were like, bro, do I have a lot to talk to you about yeah <laughs> and then like i remember you ordered videodrome because they did some kind of re-release criterion put it out on blue yeah, yeah like 2009 2010 and i remember us making like a night of it me coming over to your place us drinking and watching videodrome and it like blew my mind man hell yeah but anyway yeah i like went back and looked at my college paper on this and kind of read through it and pulled some bits and pieces and i was curious to see like how my opinions had changed because oh yes yes please 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 yes Yes, quote yourself from this paper, please, please. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing problematic. It's more just a maturity difference. I mean, I first saw this movie probably when I was 15, 16. Yeah. But, you know, writing about it in college and I'm like maybe 21, 22, somewhere in there. You know, at the time, zero engaged, married, long-term relationship experience, right? Basic dating here and there, like, that's it. Zero interest in, like, having children, period. Like, that was just, like, not <laughs> even on my scope. Yeah. So, like, just the difference in, like, approaching this movie that is so much about heavy relationship dynamics, not just dating, couple bullshit, but what it's like to break up, what it's like to, like, really seriously go through a hard fucking breakup and the resentment and the anger and just all the negative emotions that come along with that and having a fucking child yeah. up in the mix of all of that and having to deal with that whole aspect. I didn't have any of that life experience and i'm writing this paper on that right there's a lot of childbirth themes in this movie too yeah of, of just child of spawning brood and hey i came at it from the exact opposite end of yeah seeing it for the first time in my 30s expecting my first child and boy again Oh, thank you, Aaron. I know, like, I know you just didn't talk <laughs> me down from watching this one. Nope. I love how you were just like, should we do the brood? That sounds pretty good. Let's do the brood. Okay, cool. And just I shut <laughs> yeah, my mouth. I didn't thanks. say anything about it. No, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. But yeah, like, it, it was interesting going back and reading the college paper that I wrote because there's just like a difference in maturity level there and what I was considering at the time and kind of how I'm looking at it now. Married, been in a relationship for a long time. Thankfully, we don't have crazy issues or anything, but we have also been kind of discussing all the child stuff and everything else. We're just at that point in our lives now. So I have a different perspective, certainly, on some 
some things than I did before. But, you know, I think in general, what I wrote then kind of lined up with how I feel now in a lot of ways as well. So I was at least relieved that, like, this paper that I wrote was not just super fucking cringy. Yeah, <laughs> Cronenberg's really cool. Steven Spielberg's overrated. Cronenberg is really kind of, that's kind of what Look, I was hoping I, for. I, I will say in film school, I was never one of those assholes that was like, oh, Spielberg's overrated. Oh. I, good. But to your point... I think anyone who has experienced a bad breakup can relate to this movie. Like, yeah, to certain degrees, yeah. A bad breakup as an adult, especially, can really appreciate this movie. Like, And especially if there's a kid involved. Yeah. Married or not married, kids can be in the mix, obviously. But when there is separation and then there's the question of what happens with the child. And then just all of the paranoia and suspicion and, like, anxiety around what happens with a child when they're with the other person. Person and you're not there yeah you know just all of the like lack of control and knowing what is happening behind your back and can you trust that person are they the same person that you knew is there somebody else in their life and then you're worried about that person interacting with your child and just all the weird jealousy and suspicion that comes along with that like it's it's complicated and it's messy and it's not meant to be fun you know, and that's that's the thing about this movie specifically is like, yes, there is a lot of dumb exploitation movie shit like Little Monster Children, but where the true fear and dread and anxiety lie in this horror movie are exactly in all of those real life things, a thousand percent. And that's the key difference is behind all that exploitative horror of just like demon children killing people, the ideas behind it are what separate it because yeah. the ideas are very deep, very complex complex can be very dark um i forget which movie we did previously but i remember you specifically stating how and you didn't want to sound like a douchebag but you felt was you could only appreciate if you were at a certain stage in your life i think it was the invitation you can only appreciate when you're in your 30s or late 20s that sounds like something i probably would have said for that movie yeah i would make that same argument for this movie i feel like this is a movie you can't fully appreciate especially as like a teenager kind of going back to like seeing this the first time when you're 15 or 16 I, I bet you probably didn't appreciate it nearly as much as you no, did not at all. after you had some like failed romances and like age behind you one thing that i have heard several other people mention specifically about Cronenberg and this is thousand percent true for me as well just having a complete absolute hatred for one of his movies the first time you see it because something is just not processing in you correctly something about the movie is just pushing you away and keeping you at an arm's length and not letting you get close to it because you are not ready for that movie. The example for me is The Fly. Uh, I haven't watched The Fly as an adult, or I only watched it when I was a teenager, and I thought it was whatever. I just didn't like it, which is why I'm excited for us to eventually go to The Fly so I can have an excuse to finally like appreciate it as a, an adult. Well, for me, it was more of his straightforward stuff, his later stuff especially. I had such a negative reaction to A History of Violence the first time that I saw it. Really? I fucking hated that movie the first time that I saw it. And it's one that took me a few more viewings for it to really set in. And I really enjoy it now, and I like it a lot, and I appreciate a lot of what it's doing now and some of the subtlety and nuance of, like, where that story goes and how it ends. But, you know, I, I really hated that movie the first time I saw it. And I am still at that place right now with Cosmopolis 
that came out several years back and Maps to the Stars. I am still kind of feeling that uh, I fucking hated this movie, you know, so maybe in another five to ten years, I will appreciate those movies differently because I will have some kind of life experience or insight that lets me take a step toward them for where they are. You know, I'm not expecting the movie to meet me where I currently am as much as I need to, like, meet that movie where it's at or not at all. And I don't necessarily feel that way about his early stuff. Like, I always connected with The Fly. That's a movie that I've seen a lot from a very young age because my mother liked it. And I was just fascinated by, like, the concept and monstrousness of it. But the, like, relationship stuff I obviously didn't get until I was older. Videodrome is one that, like, I was fucking obsessed with when I saw it when I was a teenager. but like, I'm glad I, I waited until like 20 or 21, right, when we watched that together. Yeah. And despite uh, known psycho... Uh, James Woods, yeah. Crazy person, James Woods being the, the star in it. It is a phenomenal movie, and I, I can't wait to revisit it for our show. But yes, I don't think I would have liked Videodrome if I saw it any earlier in my, my life. But yeah, The Brood is definitely one of those that it was fine. That's the best I can say was when I saw it, growing up it was fine i didn't connect with it because it wasn't as extreme and over the top as i was expecting and i just kind of thought this is weird and whatever but you know the older i've gotten the more that i can relate to the movie and the more that i get what it's actually doing so you know cronenberg is complicated in that way like we've talked about the other david david lynch for instance and like you have to be on the right wavelength to kind of get an appreciate a lot of David Lynch stuff. And I think you do have to have some context going into his stuff as far as who he is a little bit as well to really kind of get where his humor is coming from. But, you know, Lynch, I think, is one of those things like people either will get it and enjoy it or they just won't. Whereas Cronenberg is kind of one of those directors where, like, I think you kind of need to, like, meet the movies where they are when you are ready. If you want to, like, really appreciate them and they're going to take a little bit of life experience to fully appreciate. And I know that sounds like really heady and really douchey and just kind of smarmy to say, but I feel like that's very much the case. You can watch this movie on the surface, but you're just not going to get as much out of it otherwise, you know? I'm comfortable in saying I would not have gotten it nearly as much if I'd watched it when I was young. And I'm sure I didn't get uh, as much out of, like, Videodrome when I watched it in college as if I were to watch it tomorrow. Like, I mean, I, I think that's just the case with getting older and seeing things and having more experience and being able to relate to a movie more fully. Yeah, and I think part of what makes this movie work so well is the fact that there's, you know, melodrama drama injected into this story you know and anytime that you like put melodrama into horror or vice versa you put horror into melodramas it's a very effective way of deep diving into like the psyches and the interpersonal relationships of the characters to really bring some depth and relatability to them in this otherwise kind of implausible weird out there concept you know like again the whole idea of this radical psychotherapy where you physically somatic manifest your anger and your inner desire and fear and all this other bullshit. Psychoplasmatics. Yeah. Psychoplasmids. Yeah. It sounds like something out of a fucking Bioshock. Plasmids, yeah. yeah. That concept is just so fucking buck wild. And again, like, all the little alien children I say alien, they're not alien, but like all the little the like brood. broodlings, 
things yeah. running around. It's wild, dumb shit. But the fact that all of the interpersonal relationship stuff, I mean, you could have just ripped this out of a Lifetime movie, and it's the same. All that other stuff is there, but injecting that horror aspect into it, or, again, injecting melodrama into this horror movie, you know, if you want to look at it that way, makes it that much more relatable, you know, because you know these characters, you have been these characters, you can relate to them. This is kind of more surface level, but the, something that I always did, like, with Chrome again is like the naming of stuff yeah creatively making up these things as like a MacGuffin or just the pivotal part of the plot like in this case it's the psychoplasmics which is the therapy technique in which you encourage patients to physically and physiologically change their bodies to rid themselves of these suppressed emotions then the institute where the psychotherapist runs all this is called soma free institute which is such a good like yeah. cryptic name for uh, an institute that would do something crazy like this. So essentially Frank and his wife Nola are divorced. Their child Candace is visiting both of them. Nola is being taken care of at this crazy psychiatric experimental facility called the Soma Free Institute. Totally cool. Totally not cryptic. Totally like Fucking legit. crazy, yeah. And the whole deal again is therapy where you kind of purge your trauma and your anger and your damage through physiologically altering, changing your body, expunging that. Let's pause here for a sec. The only real evidence of this that we see throughout the film is like tumorous, literal like ulcerifications on the skin. Like none of it looks pleasant. It's like cancerous growths and yeah. stuff. Yeah. What the fuck is the benefit of this? Yeah. It's not like ayahuasca where you drink stinky tea and then you vomit for 12 hours but then after that you like see the face of god touch the face yeah. of the eternal being and like come out of it a better person right as much as you are externalizing your trauma to get rid of it and purge it and like move through it as raglan says in the beginning it still sticks with you it's still stuck with you it doesn't go anywhere physically stuck with you and really like right? all the like people that you see have either like are going through this therapy or have gone through this they're miserable still f seem pretty disturbed like still seem like yeah. they have a lot of psychological issues going on so everyone like kind of keeps bringing up that like this radical new treatment or therapy or whatever you want to call it is so successful but we see no fucking evidence of it throughout this entire film and if anything it just makes things worse literally as we find out later on in the film literally gave one guy induced lymphoma yeah has that fucking nasty growth on his neck it kind of goes back to this whole idea of the scientist in a lot of Cronenberg movies, and very much the, like, coulda, not shoulda yeah. of the science, right? Just because you figured out this crazy psychoanalytic technique, neato, what the fuck is it actually doing to help these people, though, right? Well, and... I, I took it as a little bit like sort of what you see in other Cronenberg, like especially in Videodrome, of like what transcending humanity actually looks like appears to us as something grotesque and like these yeah. gross growths or whatever. So I wonder, because like this movie doesn't really explore it that much or bring attention to that much, but I wonder if like psychoplasmics is like the first step in like transcending your humanity in a way. And like <laughs> yeah. that idea of transcending humanity is becoming like a grotesque tumor monster. So to us, it looks disgusting and awful, but it actually is what human transcendence looks like. And it's not as angelic looking as we think it would be otherwise. 
dies. Or just complete transcendence into death because you gave yourself cancer. Or that. But yeah, like <laughs> the idea of the horror movie scientist trope and how typically that character is kind of detached from the overall narrative, but is always kind of the originator of the plot. They're the catalyst. They're the reason why things are happening. They're just not the ones that you're following always. That character also always at the end tries to fucking absolve themselves from what they've done because they were like a crusader for science and they were pushing the boundaries of human subjectivity and like look at all this that I've accomplished but the question's always yeah but why bro? Like, why did you do this shit? None of it's been good. Right? <laughs> and they always get fucked, too. Yeah. Um, and, and there is a little bit of real life nuggets of truth in this idea, because when you're stressed out, when you put your body in a perpetual state of stress or severe depression or anything like that, you are increasing your risks of cancer yeah. and heart disease and stuff like that. Well, it's the same thing like anxiety causes stomach problems. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it's just the basic one to two thing just taken to like the nth degree yeah yeah in this case like literally like growing sacks on your body that can give birth to demon children that do your bidding yeah. based on how you feel another thing that's kind of common that we've seen in real life but also you kind of see it in movies and stuff as well is this feedback loop with psychiatric therapy doctors and then kind of their star patient and how this weird kind of fetishization happens where the patient kind of becomes more and more fixated on and obsessed with and kind of, you know, makes totemic their ailment whatever that be and it becomes this badge of pride that they wear and will fucking tell everybody about yeah i am the one that deals with this thing like i have this problem that's all you'll ever fucking hear about from that person is them talking about this trauma you know like weird fucking like side reference but like one thing that kind of aggravates me when we're watching something like chopped they're going through and talking to all the chefs and it's like yeah you know so why are you here on chopped today you know oh well I have my own business we're kind of struggling I just really need this $10,000 to go back and like you know get my business you know up and going because we had a hurricane or my wife died or whatever and then you'll have somebody on there that's like I uh, ran a, a marathon and I didn't train properly and my body shut down and I had to get a liver transplant and I completely fucked myself up <laughs> You're, I'm laughing because that's the case because I've watched a lot of Chopped and yeah. But there's so many people that get on there and they're like, I had this problem and that is all I'm going to talk about this entire fucking episode. Every time it goes back to me, you're going to hear about this problem I have. Hey, what do you think about these basket ingredients? What are you going to make out of moose nose and like head cheese <laughs> and guava fruit? Well, because I lost my hand and I replaced it. Exactly, <laughs> so, like, right? I, I'm well trained for this stressor. Yeah, yeah, like because I had like one in a million diabetes that nobody else can understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make this dish just for people like me just me that's why i like the contestants on forge and fire so much more because instead of that they're like i know i could persevere because i have studied the bushido way of the blade and it's like white guys <laughs> like us who are just a little too yeah. obsessed with japanese culture yeah. like to a problematic Fucking degree sit down steven seagal yeah. anyway there is kind of that weird feedback loop and you see that in this movie where nola is the star patient another patient even refers to her as the queen bee 
she's the special one. She's the one he cares about, Foreshadowing. right? Um, yeah, really. And even her dialogue, when Frank finally comes to her at the end of the movie, you know, the way that she's talking about her therapy and what she's been going through, you know, the, the literal quote is, I seem to be a very special person. I'm in the middle of a very strange adventure. Like, she's kind of totemizing her ailment in this weird fetishistic way, right? And then Raglan is kind of doing the same thing where like he is touting his achievements and he's literally got the cover art for his own book framed hanging on the wall in his office and he is all about like his own bullshit to the point where he's literally doing these weird public sessions that's such a weird patient confidentiality thing that you don't breach but yet he's having this session with the Mike character in front of a fucking audience because he's just that much up his his own ass about what he's doing you know this scene was kind of the most parody scene of i see what cronenberg's trying to do here because like people are whispering in the audience oh my god the man's a genius and stuff like that yeah because the movie opens on that right and at first i thought it was a play like it was a two-man play a two-man show and they even treat it that way like even like the lighting and everything yeah yeah that his helper guy comes out afterwards and is just like thank you for coming it's acted out like this avant-garde like college student play please tell me you're gonna splice in audio bits from specifically oliver reed and samantha egger <laughs> oliver reed has a voice that i could fucking listen to all same day. here Just man this weird quiet intensity through everything but like the way samantha plays nola like you said she is on another fucking planet but in the right oh in yeah the right way for like what happens with her character mommy yes candace yes sweetie mommy you hurt me you hit me with your fists and, and you scratched me with your nails. You, you hurt me. No, I didn't, sweetie. You must have had a bad dream. Mummies don't do that. Mummies don't hurt their own children. They don't. They never do. They never do. They sometimes do. Sometimes, then they're bad mummies. They're fucked up mummies. Like whose? Like whose mummy? Like mine was and bad. No, I'm not, Nola. You're being so unfair, sweetheart. Mummies never do that. Mummies never hurt their own children. You did hurt me. You beat me and you scratched me. You threw me down the stairs. Show me what I did. Don't stop it now, darling. You show me. Show me your anger, Nola. Show it to me. Go all the way through it. Go all the way through it to the end. She is like full crazy eyes. Her eyes are the most fucking haunting part of this movie. Vampire cape bullshit. Yeah, Yeah. her eyes are pierce your fucking soul in this movie. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought up that last scene where like he confronts Nola. So kind of just a backdrop. If you're listening through this and you haven't watched the movie for whatever reason, you find out that like these demon spawn children that are appearing up have no sex organs, can only live like 48 hours because they have this sack on their backs that's kind of like a camel's hump and when it runs out of nutrients they die they don't have a belly button they don't have a belly button they don't have 
fully developed mouths to speak with and teeth and all this. They're just kind of these weird little aberrations. Yeah, they're kind of like fucked up versions of her actual daughter in this movie, like incomplete versions of her daughter. Going back to his Queen Bee comment, like they basically are under her control, but under her control through emotion rather than maybe thought, like psychically. And so towards the end of the movie, she had those children abduct her real daughter and is like holding her captive so like you said earlier dr raglan's just like oh i'm gonna try and be the hero now because i did this weird science and it's backfired blah blah yeah he's like i'll go rescue your daughter you go talk to her and keep her calm during that scene when like frank is trying to keep nola calm while dr raglan rescues a daughter he does the bare fucking minimum to keep nola calm and only (laughs) makes the situation a thousand times worse and honestly i blame frank for Raglan's death because like Frank does absolutely nothing to calm down Nola in any way shape form to the point where like Nola reveals herself like reveals the growth that she's been growing through this therapy and it, it reveals to be like this sack that's kind of like an outside womb that literally like spawns out these babies that are the demon children when she reveals that granted it is kind of like sudden and horrifying but Frank makes no effort to be like oh wow yeah you really are transcending humanity he just goes like oh my god God, you're a m- 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 monster, yeah. basically. And of course that pisses her off. <laughs> like, come on, man. Yeah. Going back to Raglan for just a second, that's one thing I do think is interesting about this scientist character in this movie, because in the previous movies, the scientist character is, again, very much the originator of the problem and, like, defends their actions, but they are not really that actively, like, in the story or present or anything in their they're gone, right? Raglan very much starts as that at the beginning, but then by the end, he kind of is the opposite of that trope in a lot of ways. He is definitely active in the therapy and in the narrative and in the resolution. Like, he's not just kind of in the background. He and Frank, like you said, are actively working together to get Candy away from Nola, right? And his driving purpose kind of ends up being commendable at the end of the day. Like, he kind of realizes this is all fucked. Send everybody home. We gotta get this situation ironed out. You know, he could have just bailed. He could have lied. He could have continued doing anything. But, like, at least he didn't, right? But ultimately, too, Raglan is kind of that mirror reflection of Frank, where Frank is kind of weak and ineffectual as a father, and Raglan is strong and confident and charismatic, right? And he's, you know, to a degree, it is positioning him as this bad father, you know, because essentially he is the father of the broodlings, if you really want to look at it that way. Like, his therapy is the reason why these little monsters are running around. And, you know, obviously he is a direct figure of that patriarchal repression, you know, and his aim is to essentially crush the desire and the anger and the fear, like just the emotion out of all the subjects, which in this case are, we most notably see him working with Nola and then Mike. Which... I love that artwork for the stages of anger with like the mouth and everything like that's such cool and also haunting artwork. That's the kind of style choices you're really only going to see in like a Cronenberg movie. Yeah. The whole idea that emotional energy is destructive energy and that it's kind of this all-consuming thing that it has to be capped off or just blown out and purged 
entirely. And that's kind of like what he's doing with Mike at the beginning is telling him, like, pass through your fear, pass through your anger, go all the way, all the way to the other end, don't stop in the middle. You know, it has to be that complete and absolute purge of all of that to get to, like, a complete state of emptiness. Or, again, we have to cap it off and keep it from leaking out. And again, what is the end game though? Like lymphoma, like that other patient has? Well, I mean, you know, I don't think we, you look at it literally. I think you have to look at it metaphorically. Like it is about repression. I mean, it's about male patriarchal repression specifically. I get the behind the scenes actual message. I just mean like in <laughs> in the world of this movie, what the fuck is the end game for these patients? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're going to know, really. Yeah, you're never going to know. Either the end game is you get cancer you make demon babies with your tumor womb yeah i mean it's kind of like with videodrome it's the same way like who is pulling the strings why are they pulling the strings and like what is the ultimate end game of that movie's level of transcending humanity it could be a very nihilistic thing where like there is no point it's just to do it you know to say that you accomplish this But, you know, overall, what's interesting about this character, this, like, scientist type, and frankly, the female characters and the male leads in his movies, is there seems to be, like, this transition from his very, very early movies where you kind of have these weak, passive male protagonists, and then this kind of passive scientist who is, again, the catalyst for the plot that's happening, and then a very sexual and destructive female presence. That is very much what Rabbit is, that is what is going on in Shivers, and all of that triptych kind of transmits to being what we have here in this movie, where you have like a weak, passive male protagonist, but then a domineering and active scientist in the plot. Daddy. And still that- Daddy. Yeah, Daddy. That destructive female character, but in this case, they are more the victim. And then you have this kind of flip where in some of the later movies, like The Fly, for instance, you have the male lead as this strong, dominating, angry, and passionate artist scientist character. I mean, like, Jeff Goldblum in The Fly is a scientist. Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers playing twin gynecologists, they are medical doctors, right? But very much the kind of character trope that they're playing is the artist, overly yeah. passionate artist, basically going through all the stages of drug use and withdrawal and like addiction and all that, right? Just that like I have spliced a duck with a tiger. Look at my exactly. art. I am God. And then what you end up kind of having there are these female victims who tend to then be more passive in the plot. Right. So there's kind of like a weird transition there where the male lead and the scientist character kind of become one in the same and you move from having women as like a destructive force to be like controlled in the early movies to being more passive weak ineffectual victim character like the male leads tend to be in the earlier movies like there is a weird transition that happens there well i was gonna say i know nola is the antagonist like on paper is the antagonist of this movie but i think something that i like about the brood is just how tragic it all was leading up to this yeah because like we never get into the history as to like why she was institutionalized 
finalized to begin with. We just know that their marriage either straight up failed. Were they like, I can't remember. Is it confirmed in the movie that they are broken up and like it's his ex-wife? Yeah, he says ex-wife. Yeah, so they, they probably went through a really messy divorce and, you know, God knows whatever trauma she had from her grandparents, if that were true. But she obviously had some kind of mental disturbance and really needed help. And instead of finding proper help, she finds this asshole who like wants to make tumors pop out of your body that manifest anger so i don't feel right calling her the antagonist even though she is no and i think that's a testament to this movie just like how many layers really are there i honestly think that of the films i've watched from cronenberg which is only a few of them he has a female step up in a stronger role in this case her being the quote-unquote queen bee like puppet master behind these the brood itself than in other movies i've seen him use female characters basically another thing too like going back to the family side of this psychoplasmics again you were asking about what the end goal is psychoplasmics seems to be kind of rooted exclusively in like the milieu of family and childhood trauma mommy daddy mommy fucked up mummies um anyway <laughs> that's gonna be my band name fucked up mummies fucked up mummy was by the way where does this movie take place because like at first i thought it was england somewhere no it's being cronenberg this is all canada, canada yeah the majority of the movie was shot in toronto that makes that makes a little sense. bit in mississauga but uh no it was pretty much all toronto again you can tell immediately based on the fucking brutalist concrete cinder block school that candy goes to perpetual state of snow just everywhere just a tundra but yeah like all the victims that we hear from it seems like what they're working through is all somehow related to like family trauma you know mike's daddy issues daddy and nola's parental abuse issues we never quite hear what what's his face's deal was either but it seems to be that so much of psychoplasmics is centered around that and nola is kind of this Ouroboros of that idea again because her childhood trauma is being reflected onto Candace and Nola's whole realization that she is now again a bad mummy a fucked up mummy is only kind of compounding that frustration because she's realizing like oh you know I'm taking so much of what I dealt with with my parents and uh, you know I'm working through it but I it is affecting her but then that's just making me more angry and clearly like there is a point where she crosses that self-realization and the broodlings kind of become a way for her to solve a lot of that. And kind of in the same chicken and egg sort of way, Candace is also doomed to that same fate because, you know, at the end, we do see she has two little bump growths on her arm after all this trauma. I took it as like the early stages of whatever process psychoplasmics yeah. goes through. Exactly, yeah. But Cronenberg, like in the movie, are seeming to imply that that cycle of abuse is a thing almost like it's a genetic memory or a genetic behavior yeah it, it certainly could be because like the, there's always that argument with when it comes to the nature of evil right where how much of it is environment how much is it genetics and while i think environment plays a bigger role personally like there's the idea of genetic memory stored within our genes are the memories of our ancestors and all that so why not would any memory of something severely stressful 
also like trauma be passed on right if that's yeah. the case i mean i don't think this movie is specifically going towards that but i, I kind of made that connection in my own head i think it's more what you said a second ago that it is more of a nurture yeah thing because it definitely is implying that children who are abused become angry and impulsive they essentially become bad children in air quotes that have to be punished by their parents to like put them in line right but then that causes those kids to also grow up and then become the abusive bad mummy parent in the same way and kind of more recently at least i know with the cycle of sexual abuse they found that there actually really is no evidence of a parent was sexually abused as a child that they would become the abuser, they would become yeah. the abuser at least in that case i don't know about physical abuse it's been a minute since i learned all that in nursing school but i think there's been a lot more modern evidence-based stuff that has looked into that but this movie is coming at it from 1978 where i think it still was very much of the belief that cycles of abuse are very much within a family well this movie is also not coming at it from a clinical right. authoritative stance either it's, it's coming from the standpoint <laughs> from Cronenberg being a, a concerned parent <laughs> yeah it is coming from him being paranoid that his wife who is going to live on a hippie commune in California is going to be negligent of their daughter or exposing their daughter to like things she doesn't need to be seeing at that age or how is she going to live is she going to be going to school are you going to be able to like take care of her properly in this hippie commune all of that fear i think is what's informing this whole chicken and egg question i doubt he did much research if any into like the clinical stages of abuse at the time and even if he did it's probably exactly what we out just date, talked about yeah. where it is that out of date notion that children who are abused become abusers you know because we know now that like that's just not true like that's just not the case all the time in every situation in most cases that's not always true right because so much of it is just nature and nurture and that weird combination of those two things but it's never like empirically a hundred percent of the time that's always going to be the case yeah because i think it kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of the idea of like people who suffer from mental illness are more likely to be victims uh than people who don't suffer and are less likely to be the perpetrators of actual violence against others but kind of wrapping like at least the end of this movie up the most striking image where everything we've discussed throughout this entire episode kind of comes to a head the most striking image the most scary horrifying image to me is towards the end of the movie nola says i would rather our child die than leave with you yeah so she turns the brood on their own children so in order to save his child quote unquote in order to save his child he has to kill nola and to the point where nola even like kind of eggs him on to do it and the scariest image and most striking image is him like strangling his wife it is as if an abuser is killing his spouse strangling his wife on the bed and yes he is doing it to save his child but like again just with how like ineffectual and, and ineffective as a father frank has been in this entire movie and just the imagery of this happening and just where the headspace of Cronenberg is at that deals with so much more complexity than just the act of the hero making the hard call to save the life of their child right that image to me is the most powerful image is like when he's doing that yeah and the end scene as well is also kind of where we see 
Nola fully, like, become the monster. Like we've been saying this whole time, Frank's kind of failure to listen, his failure to understand, his failure to act until the very end is kind of what leads to this cycle of abuse being perpetrated in some ways, right? But even then, his failure to, like, act leads in Raylan's death and him having to kill his wife. Yeah, and in the opposite manner, he has made his wife into this monster as the direct result of those efforts to control her behavior and send her off to this institute to, like, get her shit under control. And overall, like, her final debut and embrace of her abject self comes without shame and without self-loathing like she is very proud of look what i've done <laughs> like look at this crazy shit i made a fucking weird baby out of a pouch yeah. it, it honestly is almost like a vill- a super villain monologue and a super villain reveal of i'm dr doom and i have cloned you sue storm take a look and it's like this grotesque yeah. monster of sue storm well just her like insane opening up her dress like yeah. a fucking vampire cape and just being like here it is and like the lighting is nuts it's operatic she's like literally kind of on this stage yeah. in her weird <laughs> little shed where she's being kept like a fucking monster out in the woods apart from all the rest of the institute the only thing it was missing is her like grabbing a wine glass and saying what is a man and then throwing the wine glass <laughs> against the, the floor yeah but frank's instant revulsion of this kind of fully feral and unbridled Nola. Yeah, way to have your poker face on, bud. Yeah, like you said, that's exactly what causes her to lash out and like truly become the monster and embrace that and willingly becoming complicit in the violence done by the broodlings. Because up to this point, she is expressing her anger and her frustration and like placing blame and the broodlings are kind of psychically going out and doing that dirty work for her. But there is not a direct, like you said, there's not a psychic I am controlling them. It's more emotional. It's very subconscious and emotional, yeah. The broodlings really are a manifestation of her id and her anger and her wrath like that's what they really are but this moment at the end is where she fully chooses to become complicit in that violence by like you just said saying i would rather fucking kill my child than to like give her up to you yeah and that is definitely the moment where like she fully tips into becoming the monster well and a whole nother tragic aspect of this entire thing which we haven't really touched on is she tries to call him multiple times in the movie and the first time like he misses a call it's poor timing the second time the teacher is at the house watching their kid and she thinks that like she's basically sleeping with him and so it's kind of there's even a little bit of bad luck and misunderstanding that also pushes her into this state so like it just adds to the tragedy of her character totally and the tragedy of the school teacher's death (laughs) murdered in front of children by the way imagine being one of those kids and these two fucking demon baby children just like oh my god like those kids club your teacher to death with some little toy hammers and like that scene was haunting because all the kids 
kids are like around her crying like it is fucking brutal <laughs> yeah i love too that those two little broodlings in their like matching little snow suits were just hanging out on the playground all the other kids were out there playing and the teacher calls all the kids in which means that those two little broodlings were just hanging out on the playground with all the other kids and nobody noticed nola's inner desire was wanting her daughter so they acted accordingly yeah. they blended in and you know and then she also wanted to punish the teacher so <laughs> yeah it, it always cracks me up that the broodlings were like hiding out they were already in the house you know like there was always that kind of bullshit of oh they were there the whole time like they just went and waited that is kind of creepy that's some richard ramirez ass shit yeah yeah just waiting the first reveal of them when it attacks her mom is a pretty scary scene like that's a pretty good yeah. jump scare well the broodling like being on top of the fucking refrigerator like a fucking gremlin yeah yeah, yeah. just like being there and just be like <laughs> like waiting and just that's fucking creepy yeah that reveal honestly was like reminded me of gremlins the first time the gremlin attacks before you, you don't even see it fully yet <laughs> waiting in the corner on, near the ceiling like a fucking spider-man ready to pounce yeah and of course we can't not fucking mention this on this episode the final reveal where nola like shows here's my fucking weird kangaroo pouch baby and she tears open the amniotic sack and pulls out this little fetus and just starts fucking licking it and cleaning it like a fucking animal. Yep. Yum, yum, yum. That's what we're going to do with our baby. Yeah, you're yeah. going to like just bite through that cord. And I'm like, going to pull the baby out and I'm just going to immediately start licking it and then hand it to uh, to my wife. She'll start cleaning it and then we'll just <laughs> eat the cord. Yeah, there you go. But like that whole moment, that's some buck wild shit. And apparently that caused like some controversy when this movie first came out. That scene specifically because people thought she was eating eating the baby it's still fucking shocking and what led to that confusion is for the american release of this movie at least the mpaa wanted some specific frames of that trimmed so instead of you seeing her full on just licking this thing up and down and cleaning it it just kind of cuts away from that and then cuts back with her still holding it but her face and like hands being covered in blood and so it gives the appearance that she is somehow like eaten it or killed it when in reality yeah she's just fucking licking it like a cat would lick its babies yeah but that whole idea to like lick the fetus was apparently hers she just was kind of like yeah fuck it why not i'm gonna do this and cronenberg was like brilliant yeah so <laughs> that's the wildest shit in the movie that is the head explosion from the beginning of scanners like that is the thing that this movie is known for so that is the image that is literally the like front artwork of the criterion collection blu-ray is this really nice artsy depiction of that exact <laughs> moment okay cool cool so do we have any final thoughts on this movie before we go ahead and bust out like birdling out of a amniotic sack <laughs> pouch yeah can't wait for the arrival of my first child now yay oh yeah i again like i'm just repeating myself over and over again but it's a dangerous movie it, it feels like the transitional movie the one that the artist needed to have in this case cronenberg it was the one he needed to direct in order to get to the later more widely recognized and acclaimed stuff in his filmography um maybe even the one that's a little underappreciated but also the one that's most complex maybe problematic totally 
totally understandable if you think that way, but it has a lot to say. Again, kind of like Black Christmas, this is now like one of my favorite horror movies that I didn't know about until we started the show. So I like to see that trend continue. Everything else we've talked to death over it. We went as deep as I thought we would <laughs> be going with how much is going on in this movie. Yeah. All right. Well, cool, cool. So I guess that is going to be it for this episode. Yeah, dog. Once again, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with Aaron, the movie Monster Boy, um, and Derek, the uh, cinema coward. Daddy. Cretan. Daddy. Daddy. You can check out all of our future episodes on your podcatcher of choice. We are basically on all platforms at this point. Keep rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple and Podchaser, especially because we've been getting the most attention there, which is crazy good. Thank y'all. Thank y'all so much for that. But uh, yeah, we're at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. We also have our Spotify playlist, which is on our Podbean website. The link to it is on there, as well as pinned on our Twitter and I brought that up a lot during our recommendations. I just added a couple songs to it even today so I'm adding stuff to it here and there as we go and that'll just always be there. Yep. Um, Once again, thanks to my brother Jesse for the bumps at the beginning and end of all of our episodes. Um, You can find more of his music at Bandcamp by checking out his Party Gator group um, as well as Opossums and all the other things he has linked off there. Who's your favorite possum? Me, daddy, mommy. Mommy. So yeah, that, that might like enter our fucking nomenclature for this show. Daddy. Pretty red daddy. <laughs> you bad fucked up daddy. Anyway, so yeah, that is going to be it for this week. Uh, once again, as a reminder, we are going to be kind of banking some episodes here and there. So if things seem a little like out of date, deal with it. <laughs> we'll catch back up with you on social media. What my co-host is trying to say is, please bear with us. Thank you for understanding. We apologize for any inconvenience. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I am about to spawn my own broodling. Yes, so we we have some life stuff that's about to hit soon and uh, need some time to uh, deal with that appropriately and enjoying our families so either way so yeah i think uh, at this point there's only one more thing to say which is derek i hope you don't become one of those bad sallies one of those bad fucked up sallies one of those goddamn fucked up sallies sally <laughs>